0: Uh, the B-I-B-L-E is what we're talking about. That's the book for me. At least that's what the song says. And we're discussing three questions. Last week we talked about what is the Bible. And uh, this week we're talking about how do we read the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about interpreting the Bible, how to do that, hopefully well. And then next week Sarah Walker is going to talk about what do we do with the Bible. Um, how does the Bible lead us to act in the world? Uh, I don't know if any of you are watching, and I promise no spoiler alerts, because I don't want to get beat up. Um, And I mean, I'm not going to give any. Uh, Handmaid's Tale, uh, I don't recommend it because it's dark and intense. Um, But I I confess, I have watched all the seasons, my wife and I. And um, I'm fascinated by it on so many levels. But it's this dystopian future of the United States, and there's, there's a, there's a new country called Gilead, and Gilead is this, um, regressive, repressive, oppressive kind of country, um, where, where women are enslaved and forced to do horrific and Unimaginable things. Uh, uh, the ones who are upper class and elite are still subjugated to their their husbands. It is uh, it's a really it's depressing on a lot of levels. Uh, part of what's fascinating to me as a pastor and an armchair theologian is the way that the leaders of Gilead use the Bible to justify their oppressive practices. Um, toward women, toward others who are outside of the fold, toward their enemies beyond the, uh, their borders um, it 's disturbing um, on some level, and there is this question. The main character is this woman named June Osborne, who is a handmaid herself, and her sole role as a as a slave is um, reproductive she 's there to make babies for the uh, the male commanders of this country gilead and she leads a resistance movement um leads she's part of this resistance movement against the oppressive practices of this country and it's a, it's an ongoing question because God is so much a part of the justification of what's happening in Gilead. It's this ongoing question in the TV show about, like, where is June in relation to faith and how does she navigate faith and God and all of that? And, and in this season, she started to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. And in one moment where there's this, this amazing act of resistance, she quotes scripture. And I kind of jumped out of my seat because I, oh, I got an illustration for my message on Sunday. This is perfect. Um, but I think it's fascinating that they're—they're they're not uh, this—the this show, the story of this show is not writing off the Bible to say it's only capable of these horrible, uh, horrific things. Uh, but we see the complexity of of our life experience that it's also capable for inspiring. Um, resistance to evil and amazing liberative acts uh, from oppressive societies. When we see June uh, quoting scripture in the midst of it, quoting scripture to to justify not the oppression of people, but the liberation of people from from oppression, uh, because God is a God of liberation. But I think that is that is uh, an illustration of kind of the stickiness of interpreting the Bible. Um, as we talked about last week, that that uh, the the Bible is the source of amazing inspiration and also very dark and horrific things. And so how do we navigate that? And how do we be a community that interacts and relates to the Bible in ways that are good and helpful and constructive to the world that we live in and not the opposite? And so I want to share with you um, five of my convictions about interpreting the Bible will only be here about six hours. Don't worry. Um, but I, I want to, as our, as is our custom, I want to give you a chance to interact with them, kind of want to get, get through with them because they, um, they, they kind of package together. They build on each other and relate to each other. So I want, I want you to hear all of them. Um, and then I want, I want to submit them to you to to interact and to give me feedback about them. Because uh, as I'll say, that kind of moment is not token. Um, that's that's at the heart of what I think it means to read the Bible well. So these, these are convictions about what I hope are interpreting the Bible in healthy and good and constructive ways. Um, the first conviction, I have some slides, Jen. Um, just a list so that you can remember uh, and I can remember. The first one is... Interpretation is unavoidable. We talked about this last week. I come out of this, um, religious tradition in Churches of Christ that was birthed at the beginning of the 19th century. 1801 at Cane Ridge is the, the famous defining moment of the religious heritage I come out of. And it's basically, it was built on these modernist assumptions that let, if we just read the Bible, Let's get back to the Bible. Martin Luther in the, the Reformation, he didn't go back far enough or close enough. He still was too wrapped up in church tradition and all of that. But let, let's go back to the text of Scripture, and we'll all come around Scripture and just read the Bible, and we'll discover and agree upon what is the, the precise way that we can restore New Testament Christianity. Uh, and even going back to how we should structure church, really it kind of devolved to that. Like what what are the mechanics of our church gatherings was a big part of it. What are the mechanics of uh, being saved? All of this very much a cultural product of its day and age. Um, and so what happened? You know, did they usher in the second coming of Jesus with their profound and enlightened opinions about scriptures? Scripture? Did they have unanimous opinions about what Scripture said we should do to restore the New Testament church? No, no, not not even close. In fact, it went exactly the opposite direction. Uh, our Our tribe in Stone Campbell, Church of Christ, Christian churches, Disciples of Christ, even me describing that uh, demonstrates the way it's so splintered and fragmented because when it came down to it, we started reading the Bible and we didn't agree. In fact, we disagreed vehemently. And when we did, we didn't know what to do except to split and go do our own thing where we could read the Bible the way we wanted and to say that was the correct way. To read the Bible and that those other suckers over there were the getting it wrong. We had, we'd figured out the right way. How's that working for you? It didn't work very well. It did not go very well. Uh, the great contribution of postmodern philosophy, in my opinion, the, the guys like Derrida and Foucault, or if you're from Texas, you say Foucault or Leotard, uh, they, all of these philosophers would help us to see that that all is interpretation. We can't not interpret our world. It's not good enough to say the Bible says it. Because we have to ask, whose Bible are we reading? What tradition are we reading the Bible out of? How are we interpreting the scripture that we have? Just as a little illustration, since the beginning of the year I bought this annual package of uh, the annual subscription to Headspace. Anybody use that? Familiar with it? Yeah. Oh, I love it. So good. Um, it's great kind of centering practice. What's that? It's on deal right now. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think I got a deal too like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'll get a kickback for that. or. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so it's a meditation app. There's guided meditations just to help you breathe and center and relate to, for me, relate to anxiety and stress in different ways. Um, and one of the practices of this Headspace app is paying attention to your breath in particular. And really, instead of thinking about this and this and this and this, like I tend to do, you focus your energy on your breath and just centering on your breath. One thing that I have noticed about doing that is the very act of focusing on my breath changes the way that I breathe. Does that make sense? Like I breathe differently when I'm thinking about my breath and my breathing than I do when I'm doing it involuntarily. Um, and I think there's a similar dynamic with Scripture. I think we, we uh, you know, there's the traditional assumption is that we can just read the Bible and know what it says. But the very act of reading the Bible changes the dynamic. Um, who is reading the Bible changes the way the Bible is read and how the Bible is understood. You can't read the Bible without interpreting the Bible. Does that make sense? Um, In the same way, I can't think about my breath somehow without changing it. I don't know how scientific that is, but that's my my own experience. Um, It is naive at best and dangerous at worst to say that I just want to read the Bible and do what it says. This isn't to say that everybody's interpretation is right. I think there are faithful interpretations. There are unfaithful interpretations. We'll get into more about how we discern that. But it's also not to say that there's only one correct interpretation. And, and I know what it is and I can tell you. And if you don't agree with it, you're wrong and going to hell or whatever. I don't, I don't think that's true. There's probably a range of faithful interpretations that are true to God's nature and desires. I forgot to bring the book. I was going to show you. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a minute. Um, uh, but, because it, it varies based on context and community. But what's dangerous is saying this is the only correct interpretation. Let's be honest. That's a power play. That's about control and power more than anything else to say this is the one and only way to read this. I I, uh, met with a new professor at SMU this week whose specialization is cult studies and people who leave cults. Um and it's because I'm doing some research myself on religious trauma. So this is right up my alley wondering how do how are people traumatized by religion. Uh, and um she gave me these criteria for how folks are are um traumatized in cult like kind of environments. And one of them is this exact thing about someone who says I have the word of God. I have the correct interpretation. That, that kind of mentality is wielded in such a way as to lord it over people, control and, and, uh, and have power over people. And it's very damaging. Um, and, and that got my attention, right? I think there's, there's something at stake when we're talking about interpreting the Bible. So this the the thing about interpretation being unavoidable. That's kind of the uh, that's the central conviction when it comes to reading the Bible. That the rest of these kind of flow flow out of. Um, the second conviction is that interpretation, at least good, healthy interpretation, is theological. Um, let me tell you what I mean by this. In a modern approach to Bible reading, it's a bad thing to admit that you have any biases. When you read the Bible, um, because it'll keep you from discovering the true meaning of the text. But if it's true that all is interpretation, that means we can't help but to bring our bias to our reading of Scripture. Uh, We we have perspectives. We are located. We're in a particular context. We have particular upbringings and life experiences all of those, even in ways that we're not aware, shape the way that we relate to and understand texts outside of ourself, like the Bible. So um, why, just not, why not just admit it? Let's be honest and say that's going on when we read the Bible. What's dangerous is if we refuse to admit that and then we deify our understanding of Scripture and use it as a weapon against people. That's how people get hurt. Uh, Why not be honest about our biases? Um, Because just as there are better and worse interpretations, there are better and worse biases. There's this recent approach to Bible reading called the Theological Interpretation School. Uh, and basically it says that let's admit when we come to Scripture that we come with certain theological convictions. Rather than going to the Bible to say, hey, maybe it'll, it'll first kind of tell me what I believe, why don't we be honest that when we go to Scripture, we have convictions and beliefs. Uh, uh, that come out of the community that we're a part of, that come out of the history and the tradition of the church. This theological interpretation school would want to say, we come to, let's come to scripture saying, we're committed. When we come to scripture, we're already committed to the rule of faith. Uh, you know, like the Apostles' Creed kind of stuff, like like the, the the major strokes of the story of God and the person of Jesus in in Scripture. Uh, we're we're in and we're reading Scripture through the lens of those theological convictions. Let's be honest about that. I mean, that's true for me. I'm a Jesus person. It's like Daryl said last week. Um, one of the authors that has influenced him says something like, "I don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible." I believe in the Bible because I'm taken by Jesus, because Jesus was a person. He's the revelation. Scripture was written about him. I believe in Jesus. And the Bible flows from the person of Jesus. It's something like saying that, like like we are committed to to God, to the person of Jesus. And we read scripture through the lenses of those commitments. So um, it's because of this that I would say that I read Scripture in a Christ-centered kind of way. I give allegiance to Jesus as my Lord, my Master. I believe he's the fullness of deity. He is the Word of God. He's the revelation of God. And so I read the rest of the Bible through the lens of who he is, what the gospel accounts say about him, and let's be honest, what the tradition of the historic church says about him. So, so, for example, when I read the, the, the text in the Old Testament about sacred massacre, where it basically says that God commanded Israel to annihilate men and women and children of opposing uh, countries and territories, um, I re- those are problematic texts to me um, in part because I read the scripture through the person. And life of Jesus, who is obviously doing something different in his self-giving death and resurrection in his teaching about loving your neighbor as yourself and loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. So I'm going to read those texts through the person and lens of who I know Jesus to be through my faith commitments to Jesus to say, you know, I, I want to be honest and say, man, I'm not sure exactly what to do with those texts. But I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to following the way of Jesus that is life-giving. It is self-giving. It's surrendering myself. It's nonviolent. It's offering myself up for others. Um, and, you know, I, I can uh, navigate the tension. The tension doesn't go away. But I read those texts in light of my commitments of faith. Anselm, he's like a uh, theologian from a 1,000 years ago, would say that, like he wrote this systematic theology, that he would say was was faith seeking understanding. Rather than I have understanding and I'm seeking faith for what to do with it, he said, let, let's be honest, I'm coming to this with faith. Like, I long for God, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. And in that faith, I'm seeking understanding. I think that's a wonderful posture. And I think that's that's wonderfully honest to say, uh, these, this is how I'm located. This is where I'm at right now. I want to be honest about the convictions I'm bringing to this text and how it shapes the way that I read this text. Um, all right. The third conviction. Interpretation is contextual. Um, it is rooted. Good interpretation is an acknowledgment that it's rooted in a context. Uh, maybe you've heard of liberation theology. I know some of you have, at least in a nutshell, liberation theology is theology that's birthed out of the experience of an oppressed people. So it it started initially in Latin America. So there's there's Latin American liberation theology. There's black liberation theology. There's feminist liberation theology, so on and so forth. Um, we don't have time to talk about the ins and outs of liberation theology, except to highlight what I think is a contribution of liberation theology, and that is the acknowledgement that we read Scripture within our context, and that we shouldn't just acknowledge our context as we read Scripture and reflect theologically. We should start there. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez is well-known as the father of liberation theology, and in in one of his first books he talks about how we start with Praxis. That's his word. Um, experience. Practice. We start with context and we theologize. We reflect the, theologically out of our experience. We look at the world around us and we say, what is going on here and how, what is God up to in in the midst of this? And we hold our Bible in the midst of that. Karl Bart was famous to say, If you're going to preach, you need to have your newspaper in one hand and your Bible in the other. It's a similar kind of dynamic, except uh, it prioritizes and acknowledges that context kind of is is first in the sequence. Like, we start with context. We start out of our experience. We're better if we acknowledge that and we're honest about that. Liberation theologians would say, we have to start there because um, because we haven't. All of these people continue to be oppressed in their context. We have to start with the experience of the poor and impoverished and oppressed um, because we need to read the Bible in a way that's liberative for them and re- restorative and life-giving. Because uh, so many of the ways of reading the Bible in our history have been the opposite of that. They've been like Gilead in *Handmaid's Tale*. Uh, there's an image, Jen, that's after the kind of the next slide. Could you click over? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen this image in my in my coursework in the last three years more than any other image. It's like the central. Um, frame for the program the school program I'm in right now and I affectionately jokingly not seriously I refer to it uh, it dawned on me like after three years that it's kind of shaped like a like a bird so I call this the eagle of contextual theology it's just a joke it kind of looks like an eagle when you draw the wings on it right there um, uh, so don't worry about too much that exactly I'm only seen it 1,000 times so, in a moment of boredom, I drew a bird around it. Uh, the main, the, the wings, what I want you to notice in particular is the interplay of context and tradition. And it, this is kind of basically the, a method of interpreting the Bible, um, in, in context. And the starting place is context. It's listening, To where we're at. It's listening to the people around us. It's listening to our neighbors. And our community members. It's observing. Uh, On this side. It's the the opening of context. The opening of culture. So as we open the context. We also. um, After doing that. We open our tradition. And tradition is just a way of saying. We come to the table with some theological convictions. We come to the table as a part of. A stream of history and a way of thinking and being, all of us are our product. Culturally, somehow. So let's be honest about that. And, and what happens as we interpret the Bible, if, if we're doing it well, we're bringing our context and our tradition into conversation with each other. And it's in the dialogue. Um, together, that healthy interpretation happens. That something new can be born. That new ways of being and practicing and understanding the way of Jesus that makes sense for a context, in, in that way, they can be birthed. Um, I was going to show you, I forgot to bring it, I'm so sorry. There's this great book by, um, by several authors. Uh, that's called Scripture and its Interpretation. And it's got this beautiful blue, impressive-looking, uh, glossy cover on it. I love books. Uh, bibliophile here. Um, and it, this beautiful mural on the front of the book. And it's probably three or 400 pages long. But the chapters within it, this is like the, the growing edge of interpretation. Um, the chapters in it, there's a book about African interpretation of the Bible. There's a, there's a chapter about uh, Latin, uh, Latino, Latinx interpretations, black, African-American um, readings of the Bible. And the reason is because those are not necess- you know those are different ways there are different points of emphasis in each of those cultural communities to reading the bible because the context is the variable there that changes it these are not unfaithful readings of the bible these are people who are trying to follow jesus faithfully and they see things differently they understand things differently because their context is different than ours so what if, what if it's possible that there's a range of, of faithful readings of scripture that, that change not because we want to have different readings of the Bible so we can get what we want or whatever, but because contexts are vastly different in different places and that affects the way we read the Bible. Um, this may be a controversy, but, Um, I suspect that part of this was happening in the United Methodist Church's discernment about LGBTQ inclusion, where if you're not up on what was happening there, um, you essentially have the um, Western American kind of contingent who has a particular set of experience and context around LGBTQ uh, community and inclusion. And the other contingent is based predominantly in Africa, where the cultural dynamics are vastly different when it comes to LGBTQ. I wonder if part of the loggerheads was these two communities reading the Bible out of vastly different contexts. Um, I'll leave it at that. but I wonder if it's if it's an apple and oranges kind of thing. Um, this contextual conviction is why I would say be very careful of saying there is a universal correct interpretation for all times and places because context is a huge variable. I want to be faithful to Jesus. I I, I want us to be holy, God-loving, sacrificial people who make the world a better place. Um, and I want our reading of Bible of the Bible to lead us to that, I also want to acknowledge that the way that I read and understand Scripture um, may get me to that place, but my reading may be different from someone else who gets to exactly that same place. That's certainly true when I look back historically and note the way that Aquinas or the church fathers read the Scripture. Those dudes read the Bible differently than I do. What if that's okay What what if what if uh, what if we focus more on the the fruit that the tree is producing? Just a question. The fourth conviction. Uh, Interpretation is communal. Um, That is to say that the local church, not scholars, not pastors, the local church is the author and discerner of faithful interpretations of Scripture like in Acts 15 when they have this major forum and uh, there's a lot of people sharing vastly different experiences and they come to a conclusion, they say, uh, uh, it it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. There's this this sense of, of communal discernment around what's going on in Scripture. It's the reason why in our community uh, we invite, Multiple voices to speak from the front, and we invite, when preachers aren't long-winded, conversation you know, about what's being said from the front. It's the reason in the past, as I've talked about uh, controversial passages in Scripture, that, that I don't offer my perspective on them as the end-all, be-all understanding, but I submit it as a student and as a participant within this community to the discernment of this community. Because there's something the Holy Spirit lives in the people of God, in the community of God, and we discern together. I think there's a really important power check in that, too, because another characteristic of toxic faith communities is, you know, those egotistical leaders who would say, what I'm preaching is the word of God, and you should obey it because the word of God says it, and I am preaching the word of God. Horrible things happen in the name of preaching in the word of God. My my cult expert friend told me about um, her Mormon church experiences. She was in the Mormon church for 40 years and she talked about Joseph Smith and how he he wrote this letter to another woman that he would really like to have sex with. And the way that he got there was to say, I know you think the Bible says we shouldn't do it, but I have a direct line to God. and And God tells me the word of God. And I'm telling you that the word of God, and if you want really want to have happiness in this life, then you should become my wife and sleep with me. You see the power play that's happening there using the Bible? That seems ridiculous and outrageous. But that's the road we get on when we have to say there's only one right way. Um, so I want to avoid that kind of toxicity. Uh, the people of God discern the word of God for them together. And I, I would add, we need to submit our interpretations and readings of scripture to our neighbors and to good friends outside of the church as well. They, might, they may not totally get the faith commitments that we have, but the image of God is stamped upon them too. And they can sniff funny business. They can sniff um, oppressive or unlo- unloving readings of scripture. And for that reason, I, I think we need to invite them in as conversation partners to say, this is how we're reading this. How does this feel to you? Uh, how does the way we understand our mission feel to you as someone who's who's outside of what we're doing? I think that's a really helpful check. It, we also need a diversity of voices. If we're mostly white, we need to listen to voices of color and how voices of color read the scripture. Um, we need to listen to male voices and female voices and not silence any partners in interpretation of scripture. We need to listen to young and to old. We we need all of these voices to read and interpret well. The final conviction I'm doing better than I thought I would is that interpretation is missional. Um, that is to say, in the words of Michael Gorman, the goal of interpreting the Bible is the creative performance of the text. In a new setting. It's the improvisation thing we were talking about last week. Um, It is for the community to become a living exegesis. Exegesis is a fancy word for interpretation. A living exegesis. An embodiment of the gospel. So that for us to read the Bible well. Is for us to look like what restoration and renewal and life and love looks like in the world hopefully light and not darkness um as paul said in a letter to second to timothy second timothy chapter three scripture's function is to help us be thoroughly equipped for every good work and um so as not to steal sarah's thunder she's going to be addressing this more next week as she deals with the question what do we do with the bible so interpretation, uh, I think healthy, good interpretation is unavoidable, it's theological, it's contextual, it's communal, and it's missional. Um, what do you think? What resonates with you? What do you find challenging about what I'm saying about the Bible this morning?